So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal wow. of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty. World's energy. biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Special. Hi, and welcome to this edition of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm Epic's Executive Director, Sam Ori. The landscape for utilities is rapidly changing. Demand growth, reliably strong for much of U.S. history, has plateaued since 2007. New distributed technologies are challenging the traditional utility model, further eroding sales. And states are increasingly moving forward on a wide range of climate-related policies that in some cases add to these challenges, and in others, open doors to new opportunities. Recently, Epic director Michael Greenstone had the chance to sit down with a leader at the forefront of the industry, Anne Pramajori, Senior Executive Vice President and CEO of Exelon Utilities. Let's listen in to their wide-ranging conversation. So welcome, Anne. Thank uh, you. I'm delighted to be here. to have you here. So there's a lot to talk about with respect to distribution companies, but I really do think the first order burning question is, you were a theater major uh, as an undergraduate. <laughs> I was. And I wondered if you could talk about what happened. <laughs> Things seem oh, to be right on track. There's a lot of water that went under the bridge between that point in and, time and And you know, we have a lot of students today. who I think would be interested in understanding your path. Yeah, I, um, so I, I was a theater major and um, as all good theater majors do, I had two choices when I got out of school. I could either wait tables or I could work in a department store. <laughs> I chose the latter, and I ended up uh, actually in their management training program. And I spent six years as a buyer um, in a, for a department store chain. And uh, you know, I, I sort of happened upon it. Um, but what was great about that is I learned how to run a little business. I mean, basically, you ha get your budget every month. You go to market and you make decisions about what to buy. If it doesn't work out, you have to get your markdowns in and you hope at the end of the day there's some margin there left um, for the company. So for a theater major, so I got to learn. that uh, buyer by buyer. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. And uh, so as a theater major, I learned how to run a little business and that was a great start. Um, but I didn't want to do that forever. I ended up going to law school here uh, in town at DePaul and uh, then uh, practiced law for about 10 years after that. I was an antitrust lawyer. And about the time the Restructuring Act was passed in Illinois, ComEd was looking for lawyers uh, because they were moving into more of a market-oriented structure for the business. They were looking for lawyers who understood markets and market rules. And, uh, and I got a call and uh, decided that it was you know, a great opportunity to see was really the last fully economically regulated industry go through restructuring. Um, transportation had had gone through restructuring. Telecommunications had gone through restructuring, and you know, really, the energy business was the last, you know, the last of the big the big three. So it looked like a great opportunity, and it's been 
uh, tremendous uh, experience. Uh, the whole the whole twenty years that I've been at ComEd. And what are your friends doing? Who are your uh, major? Who you majored with as undergrad? Oh um, <laughs> well, a couple of them have had some you know spots in movies, yeah. but most of them are teaching. <laughs> most went back to school and got uh, and got teaching degrees, and, and many of them are teaching. Excellent. So I want to talk a little bit more about deregulation. But uh, first, I was just trolling around on the internet uh, this afternoon, and I came across the uh, greatest engineering achievements of the 20th century, uh, put out by the National Academy of Engineering. Yep. So this clearly, uh, my children did not get to vote on this. The, the internet was number 13. Uh, TVs were, where are TVs? Radio and television is number six. Uh, computers are eight. Uh, automobiles are two, airplanes are three. Do you know what number one is? Yes, it's the electric grid. That's right, the electric mm -hmm. grid. So why did they, why is it seen as that? It changed the world. It changed the world. You can just the world. flick a switch and guarantee there would be electricity. powered um, a massive U.S. economy uh, in the 20th century. It changed quality of life for millions uh, in this country. Uh, if you think about rural electrification and what that was able to do, um, it has created, you know, the digital economy that we have today and all the innovation. Um, it's either you need electricity uh, to, uh, uh, you know, to, to power it or, um, you know, electricity uh, to, uh, to create uh, what, uh, you know, what, what the new uh, innovation is. It's, it's all, you know, the power grid is, is the foundation for really our world today in very many ways. Excellent. So can you explain, because... Further, we, we have some electricity nerds in the room. They all have little tattoos. They've covered up for being embarrassed. Uh, but they have. I think them. I brought some of my own. <laughs> yeah. uh, but can you explain the role that distribution companies uh, play in this, the greatest invention of the 20th century? Yeah. So if um, and, and you'll. With a particular eye on, like, what happened before there was deregulation? Yeah. Yeah, so I was going to, so if you will indulge me, I'd like to do a bit of a historical perspective on this because it's Chicago history yeah. as well. And I think it's, um, it's interesting to me and um, I think it's uh, interesting to people in Chicago. But Chicago is really the epicenter of the, uh, the electric industry. Um, and uh, if you go back to the dawn of the industry, you know, sort of the turn of the last century, um, Thomas Edison sent his private secretary, Sam Minsel, to Chicago to figure out if he could figure out a business around these light bulbs, sell my light bulbs, figure out a business around it. And what he actually did was created the industry that we have today. And it's pretty much the fundamentals are very much as, as it was uh, back then. And he did three things, Sam Minsel, that were um, three major innovations um, that hold today but are being disrupted. And we can talk about that next. But what he did was... He looked at the electric industry, which was very fragmented. Um, there were small, um, uh, small dynamos uh, sitting around the city serving small neighborhoods. And he sort of cobbled them all together and tied them to uh, a technological innovation, which was central station generation. There was some central station generation at the time in other places. New York had Pearl Street. But the really big one, um, the one that really made the difference was Fisk Street Station, which is now retired, but it's a coal plant um, in Chicago uh, on Cermak Avenue. And it was, at the time, the biggest. That's the one in, there's, is that the one in there's, Wilson? Or no, there's, yes, yeah, yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and at the time, it was the biggest uh, machine in the world. Um, GE made the turbines, and GE complained that they didn't think they could make turbines that big. 
and uh, Sam Insel actually cut a deal in terms of how they uh, manage the risk through that. But so first innovation is he created the first big central station machine. Second innovation was he okay, figured now we're out. We're going to come back to this in a couple minutes. Now, do you want to just talk about what was so great about the central station plan? Yeah. So let me. So yeah. So that will be a second innovation. Because like now we kind of like there's like a seems like there's a flavor appearing of people wanting to produce their own electricity. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, it's distributed. But what was but but the central station generation machine um, created efficiencies and it brought people together and it made power cheaper. And in part, it made power cheaper because of the second innovation that Sam Insull put forward, and that was pricing. And he figured out the more and more units of sale, the more and more customers he could bring to this central station machine, the more units of sale over which he could spread his fixed costs. And so he brought more and more customers on it and drove the price down and down. And so I, I compare it to um, Jeff Bezos talks about the Amazon flywheel. And what he says is, I have this platform business, and as I bring customers to the platform business, it attracts more sellers. The sellers attract more customers who attract further more sellers. And I create this um, dynamic, which he calls the flywheel, that the more customers and more sellers I have, I get to spread my costs over more units of sale. It gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. The fly original flywheel was this business. So the second innovation was his pricing. The third innovation was um, as uh, certain political entities started to see that this was a lucrative business. They decided that they wanted to be part of it. And he decided that um, he would create this idea of a regulatory model, and he would set it up under state control. And so he would trade off certain amount of control for the certainty of this regulatory model, which is I earn a rate of return on my investment. Um, the rate of return is set at a state regulator. Um, it's a moderate rate of return, but it's a certain rate of return. So I trade the upside for certainty in my business. And, um, and that was his third innovation. So all of that really still holds today, but it was created right here in Chicago. But that's all, all of that is also being disrupted today. Yeah, and so do you want to, that's great, and do you want to talk a little bit about, there was a wave of deregulation that you referenced, maybe that got you, moved you out of uh, being a buyer department store yeah. indirectly uh, into your current position. So the first, um, so uh, the first disruption of our industry really started back in the 90s, and um, that was the first wave of restructuring, which was to take these central station generation units and move them out into markets. So rather than have them set, the, the pricing set by the regulators, um, the generation side of the business was moved out into markets, regional markets. Uh, and that was sort of wave one of restructuring. And that's what I jumped into in the late 90s. Um, the, so before that, the guys who produced it were the same people who delivered it. That's right. We were all a vertically integrated utility is what you would say. You, you, you own the whole value chain. Um, you run the plants, you distribute it over the wires, you manage the customer service aspects, vertically integrated, and that was a major change in the late 90s to, to that. Um, and there are still utilities in the country that are vertically integrated, um, but probably 20-ish, 20, 23 states have, um, are, have restructured. Okay, and so then what does restructuring bring? So uh, restructuring. And then you maybe talk about what you're, which part of that you're focused on now. Yeah. So restructuring drove the utilities to separate generation from the wires. Yeah. So the delivery business from the product generation. And the product generation went off into markets, really structured markets. They still regulated at the federal level, but regulated much less 
uh, intensely uh, than, uh, than the wires and poles. I'm on the wires and poles side of the business. We pretty much had the same business for the last 20 years, um, and that, but we are now seeing the next wave of restructuring um, is happening in our side of the business and um, driven in, uh, in, in significant part by technology changes. And you were talking earlier about the shift from central station generation to distributed generation. Uh, and that's one of the huge shifts we're seeing uh, in technology that's driving some you know, additional disruption of our business. Yeah, so maybe we could talk about some of those disruptions. So one of them, maybe the most boring one, but is uh, demand doesn't seem to be growing very much. No. Uh, so I think we looked up some statistics, if I could find them. But it's basically projected to be flat for the foreseeable future, I think. Flat or slightly negative. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, so that's a tough business to be in. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it is particularly when you think about, and I'll go back to one of Sam Insel's innovations, that volumetric pricing. Yeah. When you tie your pricing to consumption and you're counting on more and more consumption to drive your cost or your pricing down to customers, but you have, you're largely a fixed cost business, very tough proposition. And we're, that's one of the big issues that we deal with Okay, today. so we got that. Mm -hmm. Then we got, it turns out that this central station thing that seemed like a great idea because it was reducing costs, people don't like that. They want to produce their own electricity, I think. Uh, and put. We are the United States. Yes. Everybody yes. wants okay, <laughs> democracy so and energy. I like to call that local war electricity. Yeah. Uh, and then you have like mandates on certain kinds of electricity being sold mm -hmm. uh, from renewable portfolio standards that require uh, renewables. And a lot of these new sources are intermittent, uh, whereas like the, that iconic uh, power station was not intermittent. No. Uh, and I wonder if you, you can yeah, 24-7. So uh, all of that, and, and I think, uh, we were just talking about this upstairs, people don't really like their prices moving around a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, so can you just talk about how you uh, aim to manage all of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, so, and just, uh, I think probably some people will see it right away, but even just explaining what some of the pain of mm -hmm. trying to run a grid is, yeah. Yeah, so, we, so as we've been doing a lot of strategic work in trying to think about the future of the business because you know, we make um, very, very uh, long-term uh, investments uh, in the business, so you need to look out and think about what you're doing. And we also have a very uh, interconnected system. Um, you sort of tweak one piece of it, and you know, the impacts reverberate around the system, so you really want to think about what you're doing. Um, you know, there's a, I think, uh, Silicon Valley phrase, move fast and break things. Um, you know, which is a you know sort of phrase that uh, is used in you know disrupt you know in disrupting inter, uh, industries and and um, we want to be innovative, but we also know that we have an economy to power and um, you know a, a grid to run uh, while we're creating this new grid. So that's uh, part of the reason for spending so much time thinking about it. But you know, three real um, uh, drivers of change for us: um, technology, as you said, um, distributed generation. Uh, renewable generation, intermittent generation. So we're, we've built a system that is used to um, taking power from central station generation that's usually situated remotely um, and pull it over transmission line and distribution lines to population centers. Um, very static, very stable, 24-7, 
coal plants, nuclear plants, you can count on them. You know what they're going to do. If you need to ramp them up, you ramp them up. If you ramp them down, you ramp them down. They're very available. Now we're going into a world where, and, and the industry controlled all those plants. So now we're going into a world where people have rooftop solar. Um, and uh, so they can throw, you know, the sun shines, the clouds part, and all of a sudden you have uh, uh, power on your grid that you didn't count on. We're a business that doesn't store. Um, we don't have much storage, so you have to balance in real time, and, uh, and you can't get it wrong or you can lose the system. And so we're trying to figure out um, how we deal with that. Um, so can I pick up one piece of that? Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I actually don't have solar panels, but suppose I did and I wanted to sell them into the grid, sell the excess electricity into the grid. It doesn't seem fair that I should get the same price I'm being charged. Well, so you want to talk about net energy metering, yeah. So, the, so what we would say is, and, and you do, today in, in Illinois, that's exactly how it works. Um, you know, we would argue that... Um, I'm providing this electricity. You guys right. get to go do whatever you want with it. Right, but we would argue that you should pay for usage of the grid because you're still using the grid. And, and part of what you don't pay for... Yeah, so I, think I want you to explain that part. Yeah. I'm not sure everyone gets that part. So, Because yeah. there's an inherent sense, the local board thing, is it's just fair. Like... I'm yeah. producing this electricity. Why should right. I get paid anything different than anyone else? So I'll start with there's two basic parts of your bill. One is the energy that you're using, and the other is the use of the distribution and transmission system. And so when you have solar power and you want to sell solar back onto the grid, you should get paid for the energy part. But the use of the grid, we think that you should be paid for. The way the net energy metering um, uh, credit is designed right now is you get paid for both the distribution portion, the use of the grid, and the energy. So in other words, you get a discount or a credit on the use of the grid, even though you're still using the, you know, the pipes and wires to get, uh, you know, to get, sell your power back and why, get it back are onto the system. Why like that? I don't understand that. So um, largely because, uh, you know, uh, there, so there's... So, so what would be the ideal way? It seems like I should just pay some fixed costs for having access to the grid. Yeah. And then I think we would say. Yeah, but no state really has it. I don't know. No. Yeah, why no. is that? Um, so, in, um, so we're in a disruptive world. And uh, when competitive industries get disruptive, the battle is played out in the market. Um, when regulated industries get disrupted, the battle is played out in policy space. So we have entrants. Um, solar providers, storage providers, and you have incumbents, um, utilities, and there's been a policy battle going on for a long, long time. And so the solar providers were actually very effective in um, convincing policymakers that this was necessary, this kind of credit was necessary to sort of animate or jumpstart the solar uh, industry and the solar market. And that's um, and so the policy was set. Uh, very early on in most states, and that's you know, so one of the things that we the look at being that uh, the policy I get credit, I don't have to pay for the use of the distribution system. That's uh, again in most, uh, I don't know where do we have probably half, three quarters of the states have a net energy metering statute, and that's generally the way they're designed. They're all a little bit different, now, who, but they're if generally. I don't have to pay for it. Who's paying for it? Somebody else is paying for Ooh. it. Sam. Yes. 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 <laughs> Sam's so paying for it. I'm probably Sam paying for it. My yes. Production. Well, I'm producing yeah. from the sun. So the challenge with so you know energy, um, if you're not producing it, you don't have to pay for it. 
but the grid piece is 96% fixed cost. So the fact that you're using less energy, you're not using less grid. The grid is still there, and you've got to spread those fixed costs somewhere. So they do, uh, we call it a cost shift. The cost would be shifted um, to customers who um, don't, uh, so don't get that credit. So that's what this disruption is, is we're fighting over who's going to pay for the fixed cost? Well, I think one of the things that we do, um, we are very concerned about and we're looking uh, very closely at is the, the question of how costs are allocated and how benefits are distributed. One of the things I think the industry has done very well for 100 years is assured that the benefits of the electric system were equitably distributed. Um, rural electrification, everybody had access. There was a very much a concern over um, you know, vulnerable populations and the ability to pay. And then the allocation of costs was also something that was debated in public settings and with an idea toward fairness um, and so economic like development. The of why it's just one postage stamp to go to the farthest reaches of Alaska versus yeah, yeah. everyone pays the same price. Yeah. And so and people pay different, different groups of customers pay different prices, but it's set in an administrative setting. People weigh in. There's all sorts of voices that are heard in that discussion. Um, one of the things that we do, um, uh, you know, we're very focused on is ensuring that those uh, social benefits, the benefits are distributed equitably and the costs are fairly allocated. And when you have people who are pulling pieces off the system, you have the risk of disrupting that balance. And that, I think, is one of the big questions that we, we see um, that, uh, that needs to be resolved as we work through this, uh, this transformation. Excellent. And now, I, we talked a little bit about this uh, before, but the, uh, setting aside, which I think is probably not right, but setting aside the fixed cost part, I just want to return to the intermittent part. Uh, and I think that means that the cost of providing electricity or buying electricity that you guys are going to then sell, that uh, Exelon will buy from the power markets and then sell to people like me, uh, varies over the time of the day. Uh, and so like when the sun is out, uh, it might actually be very cheap uh, because there's just tons and tons of uh, low, low marginal cost energy. Uh, so actually, there's something, I don't know if Derek and I worked on this, I worked on this, but uh, uh, smart meters. Mm -hmm. That was going to be the solution uh, to kind of like everything. Like every economist <laughs> was thinking, oh my God, we can finally get this right. Uh, we had smart meters. But because they all had in the back of their mind, it's going to be bundled with real-time pricing. And everybody's going to have real-time pricing. Uh, how's that going? Well, <laughs> so let me start so with this. Let me start with the mar smart meters. Derek always sat on the other side of the room for me. <laughs> Let me start with the smart meters. The smart meters are a, a tremendous benefit. They've been a, a tremendous benefit to our system in a number of ways. Um, on the operational side, um, we now have visibility onto the grid that we did not have before. I know everybody thinks we see everything, but literally we go into a storm situation and um, you know you have a fault on the grid and you wouldn't know where it was necessarily. You'd kind of have a, you'd know a neighborhood was out but you'd have to send crews out to sort of run, you know, walk lines to figure out where it was. With the smart meters, we have visibility to the customer home and we can see where things are happening on the grid. It has, it's, it's a huge benefit to us, to us operationally. That's, um, you know, one, one example. Um, we now have the tools to start to create the kind of pricing that you're talking about. We can actually measure 
um, you know, at a much more granular level what's happening in terms of pricing. And so it creates the foundation for be able, being able to do what you're talking about, which is measuring price um, locationally and temporally. And we would never be able to do that without the smart meters. Now, the challenge is how you actually work that into a pricing system, which, as I've just you know, indicated, is a, a socialized pricing system. It's all interconnected. And um, uh, you know, it's allocated administratively. And that's, so the, the challenge is, and, and then you know, the customer uh, acceptance of that. Um, customers have been. About, I think people would be interested in, uh, suppose like in the wildest fantasies of economists, uh, where there was true real-time location and price, like how many nodes are there? Do you want to describe what a node is? Oh gosh. Um, well, uh, you know, a node and could be. It, a, would it be possible that someone in this room would pay a different price than me? Of course. Yeah. Even in the same minute in time. Could certainly okay, depending so on where. Yeah. So I mean, you, you know, at a very and fundamental. That's very unfair unless mine is lower. At a very fundamental <laughs> level. That's usually the. <laughs> That's usually the case. Um, at a fundamental level, every customer is a node. Um, you know, you could look at it at that granular level. There's also nodes that come in from the wholesale yeah. uh, markets that uh, um, you know uh, they they tap into our system at different levels. And I, I'm looking at Joseph Hull. I don't know how many nodes we have coming in from. Yeah, so I mean, the idea is there's a point at which um, you can measure um, uh, power, uh, how much is coming in, and you can uh, associate a price with it um, based on time of day. Um, when we see peak periods, which run from, you know, say one in the afternoon till six o'clock at night, and people are using more energy, prices are higher, there's more demand. Um, it's a pretty, you know, simple concept. But also, where you're situated on the grid may have play into you know, how, how it's priced as well. So if you're sitting in a very constrained area, hard to get power in, um, you know, we don't have a big pipeline into that area, and, uh, um, like and it's... Long Island, I've always seen these maps. Long Island has enormously high, yeah. Yeah, well, islands are tough. Yeah. I mean, Puerto Rico yeah. um, situation there, Hawaii, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, um, uh, new, you know, new activity in Hawaii around, uh, around their system, again, because they're very isolated, and you don't have a lot of lanes in to bring power in and, and options. Optionality is you know, great for, um, for managing pricing. But so if you think about being in the middle of the day, peak time period, high demand, and then you're in a constrained area of the grid, your price is going to be higher than somebody who is in a less constrained part of the grid at you know, 9 o'clock at night. Um, so that's time-based and, uh, and, and location-based pricing. So if you start to think about customers, who we have trained for 100 years to expect to pay an average price. It doesn't really change. Sometimes we change it for seasons, but not much more than that for the most part. And they're used to paying the same price. You and I pay the same price. And you start telling them that where you live, just by happenstance, may create a higher price than where I live. That's, you know, that's a pretty tough uh, culture change shift um, that uh, that we have to make. Yeah, now why, why is that so hard? Uh, people pay different prices for all kinds of things. Airplane seats. Uh, yeah, is that just I, history? I, I, I there's think There's like it is. a famous line from uh, uh, the grandfather, godfather of Singapore who sends like all the best and brightest to Kennedy School uh, and they learn basic economics, probably like real-time pricing and things like that. Uh, and then they come back to Singapore and they just implement it. 
and he's said, like, what's the matter with you in the United States? Like, you're teaching everyone what to do and you don't do any of it. We're different. <laughs> no, we, um, I, I think electricity is different. Electricity, so. Um, but is it just different because of the past? Why does it have to be that way? I think because it's, um, it's, uh, it's policy-based. It's, so when I think about, um, so I had this, uh, this uh, woman that I worked for when I first came to ComEd, and she said, I light candles every morning to these gods um, in this business. One is um, the god of physics, so the system has to work. Um, the god of um, uh, the god of economics. Um, the economic system has to work financially. It has to line up. Uh, the god of policy and the god of politics. Hmm. And so when you think about that brew, that's a tough intersection. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, but it makes it exciting too. It's a great industry sure. for those reasons. Um, do you want to talk about nuclear? We know we hear about it some in Illinois with respect to uh, mm -hmm. ComEd and. Uh, just have your viewpoints on the future of nuclear and yeah, we, uh, we think you know Homer Simpson works at a nuclear plant and <laughs> like is he going to continue to have a job? There's a lot yeah. of people concerned about that. It's a yeah no the, the it's a it's a very tough um, uh, industry right now. We so I'll first start by saying we think it's very important. It is um, zero carbon energy. And um, when you read the, um, you know, the recent IP, uh, IPCC report, um, the, the UN's report, uh, scientists' report on climate, um, that basically says we got about 12 years to kind of get ourselves uh, in line um, to meet, uh, you know, roughly Paris goals, uh, or we're going to start seeing some very, very significant effects of climate change. Um, you want to make sure you have those nuclear plants uh, around, um, both because you're not going to be able to put renewables in place quickly enough to meet those goals, and secondly, because we haven't quite figured out how to run a grid uh, with all renewables yet. We still need, um, we still need some you know, um, you know, spinning rotors uh, to actually start rotors, motors on the system, and, uh, and we do not have a system that's dynamic enough and automated enough to deal with the intermittency of, uh, of distributed and renewable power quite yet. We're, we're getting there and designing it, but we're not quite there. So we so think- I, I've often wondered about it. Is that really true, or is it just that we wouldn't be willing to pay for it? Because like, I, I, like my engineer friends, they, can, they feel like they can do anything. Oh, I think we can build it, but, yeah. I, but we're not, we don't have that yet. I mean, we've got to put artificial intelligence on the, we're going to put sensors all over the system. It's going to be run by an artificial intelligence. Everything's going to be automated and computerized. So when the, uh, the, the clouds part and the sun shines, you don't have somebody sitting in, in a control room who has to make a decision Homer. about shutting down yeah. the central station to allow the solar on. The grid is going to automatically do all that, but that is not, on the I grid so at this point. We have some work to do, yeah. And then, you know, we have to have the policy debate on what the cost of that is. Um, but so we're not there yet with what the grid needs to be in terms of uh, adapting to um, the renewables uh, in the way. We will get there, but we're not there. So we think nuclear is important as that fuel that sort of gets us there. Um, the challenge we have right now is that um, 
nat the nat natural gas glut, which has been a huge boon for the economy and for the country, has driven prices for energy way, way down. And when you're running a nuclear plant um, and you have the kinds of security costs that are required to run a nuclear plant, not that we argue with any of that, but very important things, but you know, layers of costs uh, that, are, that are on this kind of business, it is very hard to recover um, enough in the energy markets uh, to cover the cost of those plants. So some of them are hanging in there, others are, you know, it depends on how efficient the plant is. The, the larger plant, the dual unit plants tend to do better than the single unit plants are just more efficient. Um, you need less people to, you know, run uh, a dual unit plant, uh, you know, just um, per megawatt hour uh, proportionally. But um, so it's a challenge. So there's a lot of uh, discussion about that. Um, about losing the nuclear plants. The other thing I would say, and this will, you know, should resonate at University of Chicago, and that is, um, you know, we are, uh, you know, we've been the leaders in nuclear energy. The first nuclear reaction was right here at University of Chicago, um, and to the extent we lose those skill sets um, and we don't have an, a commercial outlet for um, some of those skill sets, I think we we lose something in the sort of international, um, the global picture on on nuclear. Uh, power, nuclear energy, nuclear weapons, all related. And I think we want to, you know, and I think having, you know, nuclear plants in this country and, uh, you know, uh, having a commercial outlet for some of those skill sets, uh, you know, keeps, uh, you know, keeps that talent, that, that skill pool um, growing. And I think that's really, I think that's important. Uh, okay, so now I'm going to ask uh, maybe yet another totally unfair question. Uh, Exelon, uh, now sort of supported a carbon tax, an initial level of $40 per ton, then rising over time, uh, which was, uh, I think people were very impressed by that, and rightly so. Um, if the nuclear plants couldn't operate profitably with a $40 tax per ton, would that be fine? Well, I think we recognize that there are certain plants that if, you know, yeah, if, absolutely, yes, we would say yes. They can't, that, um, you know, they're... Uh, uh, there are certain plants that aren't going to be economic to run, and they ought to be even shut that, down. In fact, we even, have, you know, we have done that. Yeah. yeah, we've got one that's, uh, you know, one out east that's on the, you know, being shut down right now. We just shut down Oyster mm -hmm. Creek. Mm -hmm. And uh, what did, uh, I guess, any background on, like, where did that $40 number come from? And Yeah, I, I don't know the math yeah. behind that one. I'll, uh, yeah. But it seems like, at least on the distribution, I understand Exxon has a generation and distribution, but on the distribution side, uh, it seems like that shouldn't matter to you what kind of electricity you're serving up. No. Right? It's all the same. No, but I think we have, I, th that is true, um, but I think we, we are, you know, we have a strong commitment to, I mean, it, it, financially, economically, for our distribution companies, we are indifferent. Yeah. Um, we do not make money off of the power, and we deliver it. That's what we do, and so, you know, but, I, but we absolutely have a commitment to a clean economy. I mean, we think that that's very important, and we think we have a central role to play. Um, we actually think our business um, can be very, very instrumental in making that happen. We've got a platform business. We actually think of ourselves as one of the original yeah. platform businesses, and, absolutely. you know, we can, um, over that platform, provide customers with you know energy efficient options, and uh, you know if they if customers want to you know control their own power and make sales, we can be the platform for those transactions, and we think that's a really important role f for the future. Um, 
And then I think a natural question, because there's so much infrastructure uh, in, in, involved in distribution, is uh, the climate is changing. Have you guys started to take that on board into planning? And what does yeah. that look like? I'm always fascinated. While we debate whether or not climate change is real, I think a lot of private sector companies are just doing stuff. Yeah. No, we, um, so we have, um, I'll sort of talk big picture, and then I want to talk about a couple things we're doing right in Chicago that yeah. are pretty exciting on that front. So big picture is we've developed a maturity model for grid development. And um, we've got five stages. Um, but the three key stages are um, developing the grid for resiliency to climate um, and, frankly, cybersecurity risk. Um, stage that is developing the grid to adapt to distributed generation. And then the third stage that is uh, critical I'll talk about is um, thinking about electrifying more and more sectors of the economy, electric transportation, potentially the industrial sector, which generates about 22% of the carbon emissions in this country. If you can get the industrial sector, power 28%, transportation 28%, and industrial 22%. If you, can, if you can clean the stack and electrify those two other sectors, you know, we've gone a, a long way to, to decarb, decarbonization. So we've, we're putting together a roadmap on you know, uh, developing the, the grid along, those, uh, along that path. Which, um, by the way, would be an enormous uh, game changer in terms of altering the projections of flat demand growth, right? If you... Oh, absolutely, if transportation and yes, absolutely, um, no question about it. It, it, it. it actually may not be as much of a growth engine as, uh, it's not gonna take us back to the days of the 60s or 70s, but it does offset some of the decline and, uh, and we pick up a little bit. Um, as well. So that's kind of the big picture. If I jump down into one, some of the things that we're doing, um, we're looking, you know, at, uh, you know, where floodplains are and do we have substations in floodplains and do we have to lift them up? One of the really, really interesting things here, and Terry Donnelly, um, the president uh, and COO of ComEd is, is here and um, just finished um, putting together a plan uh, with, um, a superconductor cable company. Um, it's partly supported by um, Department of Homeland Security, partly our money, partly their money. This cable is um, uh, uh, low impedance, high capacity. It will ultimately tie um, four or five substations together in the Central Business District of Chicago um, in a way that couldn't be done before and really network them so that if you lost a substation, you could actually lean on the excess capacity from another substation to keep the central business district up and running. You can't do that today with any cable that exists. We're starting out with a small pilot in one of our own substations to test the cable and make sure that it works and uh, safe and reliable and all that. Um, one of our uh, right on uh, uh, California and Addison substation. And then the next stage will be um, to, uh, to take that through. And so that you know, if we find ourselves um, in a situation uh, where we, you know, have a, a climate uh, threat and, uh, you know, we lose, we lose a substation, we can keep Central Business District up and running. So those are some of the things that we're doing um, as we think about, uh, you know, think about that, uh, that, that climate So risk. the changing climate has entered your calculations. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, that's what Joe Svahula is working on, engineering plans around, uh, mm -hmm. around resiliency for all six of our utilities. Mm -hmm. Uh, are there any, secret is the wrong word, but like especially exciting like engineering issues that you haven't touched upon that are at work here? Yeah, some sector? great 
great engineering I mean, projects. All, but you have, a, if you're going to be the number one of the 21st century too. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, if I can talk about our microgrid um, in Bronzeville, and Bruce Montgomery is here tonight, and he is one of our partners um, in the Bronzeville community. And this really takes, um, you know, the concept behind this. So we're building energy infrastructure in the in the community of Bronzeville, but the whole idea is to try to help um, this community sort of define its own uh, energy future. And uh, so it really takes, you know, I talked about our maturity model in those three main areas. Um, this is really taking it to the, you know, the ultimate, which is, you know, so we've talked about, you know, local, you know, this sort of localization trend. Um, this is sort of the ultimate in the localization trend, but we're building a, a microgrid in Bronzeville. Um, it is partly sponsored by um, DOE. And it will connect, our, the ComEd microgrid will connect to a microgrid that already exists at um, IIT. And um, the DOE grant money that we got was to design a controller um, that allows for dispatch between these two microgrids. It will be the first microgrid cluster in the world that allows for dispatch of generation between two microgrids. So we started out with this really cool technology project. And we said, but we really want to work with the community, and we want to see if we can sort of create you know, some um, energy, for lack of a better word, around this you know, experiment in, in electric technology. And so we added some things. Um, we brought the community in, and we, we added some things to it. We um, partnered with a, a, an electric vehicle ride-sharing company uh, out of Burr Ridge. And we have a first mile, last mile ride sharing project going on for seniors um, in the community. We added some um, solar and battery powered lighting to park areas that the city streetlights don't reach to create more lighting. Um, we put in a community kiosk in the center of Bronzeville, or we're in the process of doing, I don't know if we finished that one yet, but it will have information on transportation, what's going on in the community. Um, the, power that's going to power the microgrid is in part solar and we have a firm that um, we're buying the solar from they're putting the panels on um, one of the public housing um, uh, units in Bronzeville they will sell the solar to the microgrid they will also sell the solar um, to uh, residents um, in the in the in the housing units and um, the retail price Actually, I think there. I think it's a pretty good. Uh, yeah, I think. I think it's. It's all good. I think it's a positive yeah. for the residents. I think that's how that's that's working out. Um, and uh, the 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 last thing I'll add, which I this is really, I think the most exciting. Val Jensen designed this, but we have an energy efficiency program for the residents that they can um, join one of our energy efficiency programs if they save, call it five dollars, ten dollars off their bill on a month. They can liquidate it off their bill like they normally would, or we've created an app that allows them to transfer those savings to a church or a school or a community group. And so this idea of sort of the sharing economy and testing it through um, this energy efficiency program we think is pretty cool. We also have some education programs, curriculum, um, that we've added into, uh, into a couple of the schools out there. So again, trying to think holistically about you know, how do we support this localization trend? How do we work with communities to um, help them be decision makers um, in their energy uh, future? And you know, how do we play around with some technology that we love too? So cool. that's Bronzeville. OK, uh, so 
There was recently an article in the Wall Street Journal that noted uh, that distribution companies have an incredible, or uh, an incredible, especially high rate uh, fraction of female CEOs. Uh, it's yeah. 20%. Uh, mm -hmm. Retail is 7%, so you tripled your options. By <laughs> getting it got better uh, for me. 4% uh, for capital goods, and then, of course, uh, uh, sadly, economics uh, is not so hot, 13%. Uh, what is it about distribution companies, and what could other industries, including economics, learn from your industry? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. I, d I don't know, um, but one thing I will say about our industry is I think we were, um, the industry's been fairly focused on diversity for a long time. Um, and, and, you know, I, I had a, a really interesting experience a few years ago at the Chicago Urban League Gala. They um, showed a video of a gentleman who um, talked about having gotten a job um, through the Urban League back in the 40s or 50s. And uh, the job he got with, was with ComEd. And um, the, the thing that, was, uh, that I was really proud of. Um, but I was also proud that his granddaughter also works at ComEd. Um, and so I think that our industry has, has felt itself uh, a part of the communities in a way that not every business does. We're a universal service provider. We serve everyone. We don't have target markets. And so that connection with the community, that connection with all our constituencies, uh, I think is important. And I think it's embedded in the, uh, in the industry. And, I, and that, that may have something to, to do with it. This is, you sell to everybody. Yeah. You covered a lot of space here, so uh, thank you very much. Uh, Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Sam Oring.